This is the Gore and Mole Podcast with your host, TJ Bowser, Chad Chrisman, and Wes Payne. What's up, guys, and welcome to the Gordmore Podcast. This is your host, TJ Bowser, and joining me today is... Chad Christman, your dark lord and savior. Normally, we would have three people on this podcast. That would be me, Chad, and our other co-host, Wes, but he is setting the first one out. He will be back next week for a yet-announced movie. But, a little backstory. Uh, my name is TJ. I do a Star Wars podcast called Do Back Discussion on DoBackDiscussion.net. Gordon Moore is a part of the Do Back Discussion uh, podcast network. Uh, Chad is also part of the Do Back Discussion network. He uh, does a little bit of writing, and he also uh, does some podcast hosting as well. Uh, this is our first podcast for this one, and uh, we hope you guys like it. Yeah, fingers crossed here, man. <laughs> so the first movie we will be reviewing is The Town That Dreaded Sundown from 1976 by director Charles B. Pierce who also co-stars as a police officer named A.C. Benson, or other known as Sparkplug. Uh, the film was shot around Texarkana, and a bunch of locals were cast as extras. The movie premiered on December 17th, 1976. The film runs around 90 minutes, and is revered as one of the first slasher films. It had a domestic budget of 400000 and earned about $5 million domestically. That's actually pretty nice. Yeah. That's, that's very, very nice. The film is based on the Phantom Killer crimes that happened in 1946. The Phantom Killer attacked eight people in the, tech, in the town of Texarkana, Texas. The killer has never been identified or apprehended that we know of. In 1978, one of the family members of the victims filed a lawsuit over the depiction of the sister in the film, which we will get to later. <laughs> uh, the film's tagline claims that the man who killed five people still lurks the streets of Texarkana causing officials of the neighboring cities to threaten Pierce over the ads in 1977. However, it remained on the posters. So here's the trailer before Chad tells you what the whole movie's about. Right on. Jenkins, age 19, brutally attacked March 3rd, 1946. Howard W. Turner, 29. Emma Lou Cook, 17. Bodies discovered in a wooded area on March 24th. Roy Allen, 17. Peggy Loomis, 15. Both found dead April 14th in Spring Lake Park. Floyd Reed, age 34. Murdered in his home on May 3rd. Mrs. Reed shot twice, but survived. This man's identity is unknown. He was believed to be between 30 and 40 years old. He wore a white hood and was known only as the Phantom Killer. World War II had just ended. In Texarkana, Arkansas, boys had come home to their families. Husbands reunited with their wives. It was a happy, peaceful time. Until the phantom killer struck. For four months, he held an entire city in the icy grip of terror. Now, Charles B. Pierce brings this incredible, shocking, and true story to the screen in... The Town That Dreaded Sundown, 
starring Academy Award winner Ben Johnson as Captain J.D. Morales of the Texas Rangers. We got a cold-blooded killer here. A man who nobody sees. A phantom who, so far, hasn't made any mistakes. Andrew Prime as Deputy Norman Ramsey of the Texarkana Sheriff's Department. The only thing we really do know is that we've got a very strange person on our hands. <coughs> <coughs> that dreaded sundown a true story wow that was a very effective uh trailer (laughs) it's actually a really creepy trailer it did a great job selling the movie oh absolutely and like you uh (laughs) (laughs) that guy's voice just creeps me out he did he did all those great old trailers in the 70s it's it's a very good way to uh, instill fear in your audience i guess yeah definitely so uh here's the plot rundown everyone all right let's get to this Okay, the movie opens on a World War II-era town. The opening narration informs us that this is Texarkana, population 40,000. World War II ended just eight months prior. We see the town folk going about their daily business. A newsboy is yelling loudly, selling his newspapers. Young people are going to college. We see a church wedding, a very happy couple. We also see the Red River U.S. Army Depot, shiny new cars, and new houses being built. The local movie theater is busy, and we see the date is Sunday, March 3rd, 1946. A reign of terror is about to befall this quiet southern town. A man is walking alone. We only see his lower body as he seems to be stalking someone. A car pulls up in the night into an empty clearing, and a young couple is inside. Their names are Sammy and Linda May, and he is trying to put the moves on her as we see the man approaching. Linda May turns the radio car, car radio off as she hears something outside. She's whispering, afraid, but Sammy isn't convinced. We see the man creep in front of the car. Suddenly, he pops open the car's hood, then slams it down. We can now see him. His face is covered with a white sack with two eye holes cut out. Linda May screams. He holds up wires he reached from, he reaped from the engine. Sammy tries in vain to start the car as the man approaches the driver's window and tries to open the door. He reaches into a bag and pulls out a club, swinging and shattering the window. He reaches in and pulls Sammy out. We see Linda May, still inside. Screaming, she reaches for her door, but the man's right there. He breaks the window, opens the door, and climbs inside. After a few brief seconds, the screaming stops, and the credits roll. It is now morning. Linda May, nearly dead, is struggling by the side of the road. A passing car sees her, veers off, then stops. A man gets out. She begs for his help. Ambulance and police arrive. Deputy Norman Ramsey reports that both victims survived. Sammy is a half mile away. We learn their full names are Samuel P. Fuller, age 24, and Linda Mae Jenkins, age 19. The police try questioning her at the hospital, but both victims are too sedated to give any answers. Sammy was heavily bludgeoned. Linda Mae wasn't raped, but her back, breasts, and stomach were heavily bitten. The police captain is asking the deputies for a report on the Lover's Lane case, but neither victim could give a description. Sammy can only say the man wore a white hood and is strong as hell. The deputies want to warn the students not to park on lonely roads. They believe he'll strike again. A young officer named Benson gets into a heated exchange on the phone with Mrs. Kiner, and he threatens to shoot her dog. His captain scolds him not to threaten anybody. It's now night, and it's raining. 
Howard W. Turner is sitting in his car with his girlfriend, Emma Lou Cook. He tells her the rain reminds him of Japan. She thinks he misses it because of the women. He jokingly says they do know how to please a man. She believes that means she doesn't please him. And their car pulls away. It's Sunday, Saturday, March 24th. Deputy Ramsey shows up at the police station and asks how many units they have in the field. He wants someone to check out Lover's Lane on a hunch. Howard Turner and Emma Lou Cook are driving along Lover's Lane. Deputy Ramsey is already headed there. His car slides around in the mud. He stops, gets out in the rain just in time to hear a gunshot ring out. He hurries in that direction, his car sliding badly in the rain-drenched mud. He finds their parked car. He radios for more police cars to come to the scene. He gets out of the car, shotgun at the ready, yelling to the car to see if anybody's there. There's no response, so he approaches the empty car slowly. More gunshots ring out, so he goes back to his car to call it in. He runs off, heading to where the shots came from. Howard Turner's lying face down, already dead. Ramsey continues searching, finds Emma Lou's dead body tied to a tree. We can see that she's also been bitten many times in the back. The man in the hood walks towards a car, gets in and leaves just as Ramsey arrives too late. It's now 24 hours later. We see people buying up all the guns in town, installing new locks, and nailing their windows shut. The people are terrified. The police are clueless. Austin, Texas, is sending their best invader, investigator to the case. The lone wolf of the Texas Rangers, he's called. He's Captain J.D. Morales. He arrives via train. Ramsey is there to meet him. He's introduced to the other police, including the chief. He's greeted warmly and interviewed by the press. They ask him his plan. He replies quickly that his plan is to catch or kill him. And that's all he says. Captain Morales arrives at the police station, talks to the chief, and informs them he's doing it his way and expects their full cooperation. He wants the, the press kept out of it, saying he will only inform them when necessary. They're calling the killer the Phantom. Morales says 12 of his men in six cars are arriving that day. A local man named George Hartman asks Morales if he plans on using the same tactics he used in Laredo to catch the Phantom. Morales doesn't answer him. He heads to the crime scene with Ramsey and Benson, also known as Sparkplug, but Benson lost the keys to Unit 7, which are hanging up. We now see Sparkplug is driving at full speed with the lights on. Morales makes him slow down, but he stops instead. Morales yells at him, and we see various scenes of police answering phone calls and pulling over an old man. A man is being interviewed at the police station. He's claiming to be the Phantom, wanting to confess. Claims he threw the gun in the river, but they don't seem to believe him. Ramsey now is shown sitting in a barbershop with Morales. They're going over the details of the attacks. Ramsey believes the Phantom will attack every 21 days, and Morales agrees with him. We now see Sparkplug volunteering to be a decoy for the Phantom. A few other officers, including Sparkplug, are dressed as women. The, off the other officers poke fun at them. Morales gives them orders to lay low in the car. The Phantom may be using field glasses. Sparkplug is now in position, and radios his gunman checking in. They, they mock him a little. His partner turns the radio on, trying to make the decoy more believable. A short scene of comic relief as his partner jokingly puts his arm around Sparkplug, pretending to woo him. We see it as prom night. A band is playing music of the era. Kids are dancing and having a good time. Morales and the police at the station discuss the kids at the prom. Morales wants to intensify patrols in the area. The reverend prays to the kids at the prom. They sing Auld Lang Syne and dance. The prom ends. 
It's approximately 1.30 a.m. We see a female trombone player, Peggy Loomis, leave with her date, Roy Allen. He wants to take her to Spring Lake Park instead of going straight home. She reluctantly agrees. We see the date is April 14th. Morales and Ramsey are driving alone, thinking they were wrong about the Phantom. Ramsey thinks it's, it's because it isn't raining that night. We see the Phantom waiting, stalking. He approaches the young couple in their car. It's 2.40 a.m. They start their parked car to return home. The Phantom creeps around the car as it moves slowly. The car leaves. We see him hanging on the driver's side. He shows up in the driver's window. Peggy screams as he's trying to open the door. The car veers and swerves all over. The door swings open with the Phantom still hanging onto it. He pulls Roy out and leaps from the car. He attacks Roy while Peggy tries to steer the out-of-control car. The car crashes into the trees. She gets out and sees the Phantom beating Roy with a club. She screams, which draws the Phantom's attention, and he chases her. He walks, bloody club in hand, as she tries to run. She thinks she's escaped, but he catches her and she falls to the ground. She struggles as he chokes her. He carries her off. She's screaming. Roy struggles to get to his feet. The Phantom ties her to a tree, then pulls a pistol from his belt. Roy makes it to his feet now and heads to a gate, but is shot. The pistol has a silencer, so no gunshots are heard. The Phantom now goes back to Peggy and grabs her trombone. He pulls a knife from his boot and attaches it to the trombone slide. He plays the trombone as the knife plunges into her body again and again. Their bodies are found the next day. Morales tells his men they aren't doing enough. They need to find evidence even if they have to sit, sift through every grain of sand in the park. There's a press conference. A reporter asks Morales what he thinks about the psychiatrist Dr. Kress says about the Phantom. He agrees to meet with Kress at dinner. Dr. Kress comments that quite a few patients at the prison speak of Morales often. They discuss the Phantom's motives. Dr. Kress describes him as a sadist, motivated by a strong sex drive, and the odds are against them ever catching him. He estimates the Phantom is between 35 to 40 and highly intelligent. He believes the Phantom sees this as a game and it makes him feel important. Morales questions him. He asks why the Phantom bit the women but doesn't rape them. He also asks why he doesn't rob his victims. Dr. Kress says that's not his motive. He does what he does simply because it pleases him in some way. As these questions are asked, what looks to be the Phantom leaves a nearby table, but we can only see his shoes. Back at the station, a man named Johnson is giving a report to the police. He stopped to help a man that ran out of gas. The man pulled a gun on him and told him to drive to Lufkin. He also claims to have killed five people in Texarkana. When they reached Lufkin, he took Johnson's wallet. He looked at his license I told Johnson he knows where he lives and what he drives, and if he tells anybody what happened, he would kill him. Morales tells Johnson they'll have a police car at his house 24 hours a day. Morales wants to talk to the first couple that was attacked. While driving along, a report comes over the police radio about an armed suspect two blocks away. They head there in pursuit as the suspect starts to get away. More police arrive to join the chase. They catch up to him, and we get another comedic scene as Spark Plug drives their car into a pond. The suspect's name is Eddie Ledoux. He acts innocent. He says he's from New Orleans and Texarkana looking for work and just got there. Another police car shows up with Johnson, who identifies Eddie as the man who robbed him. Morales questions Eddie about Johnson's claims, and he attempts to confess to being the Phantom. Morales isn't convinced, and Eddie is arrested anyway. Morales also refuses to ride back with spark plug driving. It's now summer. We see kids skinny dipping at a local swing hole. It's May 3rd. 
A car pulls up to a grocery store. A man steps out of it. We see the Phantom's shoes. A woman, Helen Reed, smiles at him and leaves in her car. She drives to her house, and we see her later that night brushing her hair. She hears a noise and calls out to her husband, Floyd. She asks him if he heard anything, but he didn't. Suddenly, the Phantom appears in the window behind him. He pulls out his pistol and shoots Floyd in the head. Silencer still on. Helen hears the window break, thinking Floyd broke something. She goes out and sees her husband collapse to the floor, dead. She goes to her phone and tries to dial the operator. The Phantom appears at the screen door and tears violently through it. He shoots her twice, and we hear the operator on the phone. She's still alive, slowly crawling across the kitchen floor. She escapes into the garage as the Phantom follows her blood trail. He puts his pistol away and grabs a pickaxe he finds in the garage. She's outside, hiding in the corn. He follows her as she's slowly crawling away. He's excited by the chase, breathing heavily. She makes it to a neighbor's house and bangs on a door and windows as a dog barks. The Phantom follows her, but the neighbor heard her cries and sees her collapsed on the lawn. She survives her ordeal. People are shown boarding up their windows now. The police intensify their search. Morales speaks to the press, but there's nothing new to report. He says Mrs. Reed is slowly recovering, but can't identify the Phantom. Back at the station, Ballistics has found that the bullets removed from Floyd Reed's body have similar markings to those found in Roy Allen and Peggy Loomis. He's now four days behind his schedule. Rams and Morales discuss the Phantom. They think he might have been arrested for another crime somewhere else. A call comes over the police radio about a stolen car being found. The description matches the car Ramsey saw the night Howard Turner and Emma Lou Cook were murdered. They reach the car, and Ramsey is sure it's the same one. They head to a nearby sand pit, believing the Phantom to be there. They reach the sand pit and find footprints in the sand. They approach slowly, rifles drawn at the ready. They see the Phantom in the distance, walking along a pile of sand. The Phantom sees Ramsey climbing up a sand pile. As he ducks down to hide, Morales pulls out his pistol and fires a shot, narrowly missing. The Phantom runs, with both men in pursuit. They chase him to the train tracks, with a train rapidly approaching. The Phantom crosses in front of the train. Morales and Ramsey fire off shots from the other side. Morales hits the Phantom in the left leg, but he gets away. They get bloodhounds on his trail, and we see the Phantom trudging his way through the swamp. He gets away. It's now night, years later. The local theater is showing The Town That Dreaded Sundown, and we see the shoes of the Phantom waiting in line as the movie ends. Okay. That was very good, Chad. Thank you. I think the music really... Uh, really helped the movie. Yeah, there. made it haunting, you yeah, know? Yeah, it did. It's kind of like a, an audio book with music and stuff. It was really cool. Uh, yeah, so that was the plot rundown from the 1976 film, The the Town That Dreaded Sundown. We now have a couple discussion topics that we want to touch on. So, Chad, what's the first one? Uh, the first discussion point we want to talk about is, uh, what was your favorite kill, TJ? Trombone. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I feel like uh, this film is a lot of people know it for that specific kill. And uh, I believe that that's the actual kill uh, depiction of the kill that the, the lawsuit was over? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, that was a very gruesome kill. It was very, very different. It was very... Yes. Uh, when we review the uh, the sequel, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, by the same name that came out in, the, in what year? 2014. 2014. Uh, it was a very similar kill to that. It's an updated version. Uh, but that's for another episode right. and for another time. But anyway, 
Yeah, I'd say the trombone kill is my favorite kill. I, I think I agree with you. The other scenes, it was just a lot of shooting. Yes. But uh, that was definitely the most effective one. That's the one that really sticks into your mind. That kind of sells the movie, I guess you could say. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, what's the next one? Uh, the best scene. Not necessarily a favorite kill, but what did you think was the best scene, the most effective scene in the movie? When we first see the Phantom, when uh, they reveal him uh, to be in, like in the first, like when you finally see him, you know what I mean? Like when they're when they're the closing, back, when he closes the hood, the hood of the car. The, yeah, that was a really good scene. I I just feel like it just makes him look so menacing and shit. Absolutely. Uh yeah. What about yours? I think my favorite scene was actually close to the end when he ripped through the the porch door, going after Mrs. Reed. Oh, okay, yeah. That was a very frightening <laughs> scene to me. Yeah. That was a that was a very jason-esque yes which you could tell jason obviously uh, was parts two through uh four jason-esque you know J- yeah. jason's like the kool-aid man of uh horror movies oh yeah know? just bust through the walls <laughs> of everything and, and obviously the phantom look inspired jason in friday the 13th part two yes and i think that's uh that's what it reminded me of the most this was actually my first time watching it so it was a real nice uh, little surprise there yes i watched it not too long ago and uh very very good film in, in my eyes and just on a little side note this is a movie that I've always wanted to watch ever since I was a little kid. Going into the video store and you see the big box and it says the town of dreaded sundown. It has that little sunset and you see the phantom killer on the ma- uh, his uh, hooded mask on the cover. Is uh, kind of it really drew you in. That's of course that's back when that's what movie boxes were designed to do. They had to be really eye catching and just draw you in just from that. Okay, so the next discussion point: Did the opening scene hook you in? Absolutely, with that World War II uh, footage and stuff, mm-hmm. and kind of like a sets the time period. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And yeah. the setting of the movie, I mm-hmm. think. It, I think. I think it does a very good job reeling I, in. I agree. And I, I really liked what you said there. How it, it really captured the look and feel of the area of the time, uh, the cars and everything. The newsboy, the newsboy selling oh, newspapers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you haven't seen that since really since almost World War II. Yeah. Okay, so next one. Um, <laughs> the next one would normally be best tits. But there was no tits. There was no nudity in this. Uh, no gratuitous gro- nudity. No, this this was actually a very tame horror movie. Not, I think we'll see more and more of that as we venture into the 70s. Yes. With these films. Uh, next, The next movie we do, there will be titties. Uh, <laughs> there is a gratuitous amount of, of nudity. Okay, so instead of that, we will go with Hottest Girl. Would it be fucked up to say the girl that gets ch- tied to the fucking tree? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hey, hey, whatever, whatever you like, man. Yeah, if I remember correctly, she's not horrible looking. <laughs> I actually, for me, it was Mrs. Reed. That's oh, okay. Dawn Wells from Gilligan's Island. That's who that was. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's Marianne from Gilligan's Island. Okay, that's interesting. So that goes back to having a little crush on her when I was a boy. Okay. Okay, did the score set the mood? Well, unfortunately, there was no there score. There was no score. It was a very the, it was real very, movie. Yeah, it was a very it was made to look more like a documentary. Yep, which is actually I think helped it more. Oh, absolutely. If it was just set up as a genuine as a generic shock. Uh, what year did uh, Texas Chainsaw? I want to say seventy four. It came out seventy four. So this would have been like what the second slasher movie, kind of. If you don't count Psycho. Okay. Psycho was really the first. Psycho is kind of the granddaddy of them all. 
Okay. But yeah, since there is no score, you can't really set a mood. But like I said, that was more to be more like a documentary. But I did like the music that they did show, that they did play from... Yeah, but I think that kind of goes into the whole set set the time period type thing. Yeah. Okay, then we will skip the next one. Best song, because, again... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, TJ, what was your favorite Actually, uh, best song when we go to the noises that he makes when he's doing the trombone kill. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we'll go on to favorite character. Okay, favorite character for me... uh, we're not allowed to say the Phantom, right? You can say the Phantom. Is it Phantom? Okay, you can say I'd the say the Phantom. Phantom. I, I feel like uh, he's fucking terrifying. He was because like it's a very accurate depiction of like a, like a, what a killer would have be like. Yeah, I, I I feel like it. It's so realistic because like the documentary style of the film. It's it's, it's just crazy to me. All right, excellent. I, I actually liked uh, Morales the best. He just kind of rolls in a town like Clint Eastwood taking charge. The whole kicking ass and taking names, bounty hunter, fistful of dollars, Clint Eastwood era. Yeah. But I definitely like that. Okay. Was it scary? TJ? Uh, scary in the sense that it's realistic. I mean, in 1976, and I think maybe in 1976 this thing was fucked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know some people are still bothered by the trombone kill even to this day. But that's, that's a pretty fucking brutal death. That was. Uh, yeah, I, I, scary for the time, scary today. To me, no. 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 I, I agree with you there. To me, it wasn't scary. I think I was expecting a little more from it. To me, it wasn't any more scary than an episode of Criminal Minds. Oh, okay. Because it's, it, it's a more realistic horror. Yes. So it's, and this was set up as... Almost a crime documentary as opposed to an actual slasher movie. So to me, no, it wasn't scary. But maybe in 76, it might have been a little bit more scary. And wasn't this the same director that did The Legend of Boggy Creek? I don't know. I think it Google that real quick. Charles B. Pierce. Okay. IMDb says, yep, Boggy Creek 2, Town of the Dreaded Sundown, Sudden Impact, which was a Clint Eastwood movie. He did that? Yep. Nice. The Norseman. Okay, here's all his movies. 72, Legend of Boggy Creek. 74, Bootleggers. Winter Hawk, 75. 76, The Winds of Autumn, 76. The Town of the Dreaded Sundown, 77. Grey Eagle, The Norseman, 78. 79, The Evictors, uh, 83, Sacred Ground, 84, Boggy Creek 2, 87, Hawkins Breed, 97, Ollie took a 10-year break, Renfro's Christmas, <laughs> and 98, Chasing the Wind. That That's all of his credits for directing. And I also want to point out the, uh, the movie he did, The Evictors, okay. that is actually included with The Town That Dreaded Sundown on the Scream Factory Blu-ray release. Really? Yes, it is. So nice little uh, tidbit for you. Okay, so my next question: Does it hold up today? Yes, uh, I up? feel like it holds up. Uh, I feel like it's a different type of horror movie, and I think that's what allows it to hold up. Similar to the uh, the TCM, right? Yeah, 
I think it holds up pretty well. Yes. I mean, again, it wasn't what I expected, but it's not something that you're going to sit there and fall asleep watching. It actually keeps you, really keeps you interested. I think yes. it's I think it's the fact that this is a true story and it just reels you in with the whole detective work and everything that they're trying to accomplish. Yes, I agree completely. I agree completely. <laughs> <laughs> so was the acting good or was it bad? The acting was okay. Mm-hmm. And I say okay because a lot of extras were used. And I feel other than the, the big name actors, they just got no name actors, you know, because it was at a $400,000 budget. Right. So. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, mostly. <laughs> and, and again, the only, the only character I didn't like was Sparkplug, which. <laughs> you don't like the director. <laughs> I, don't like, I don't think the director should have been acting. The, the comedy was just a little too. Uh, forced? Forced. Yes. Okay. Okay, did you like the cinematography? Of course I did. Absolutely. Uh, the documentary style, like we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. you can, it's definitely pre- prevalent throughout the entire movie and uh, the way certain scenes are shot. Uh, let's say, let's go back to the trombone kill again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way the camera's positioned to show the phantom and her attached to the tree and then how it zooms in on the phantom while he's stabbing her with the trombone. I feel like it's just just the way everything's shot, all the kills are shot, and how they fit certain things on frame and how they don't put certain things on frame. It, it's just an interesting way that uh, Charles Pierce directs this film, and the cinematography is excellent. Yeah, and it definitely goes back to the whole trombone kill, because you never actually see the knife hitting her. You just see it from a point of view where he's just you know, playing the trombone and sliding it out. And it's it's a really, really, really effective moment. Uh, and the, actually the rest of it in... Everything, just even the whole look of the era was just completely nailed. The cars, the dress, the way people dress, it was so perfect. Yeah, I I agree completely. All right. And now, did you like the premise? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think that's really fair to discuss the premise, though, because it actually happened. Yeah, that's fucked so up. It's, Minus it's, the trombone kill, that was an, uh, something custom. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's uh, that's our discussion points. Uh, do you want to go into the historical accuracy of it? Yeah. All right. So we pulled up the historical accuracy. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it says the beginning of the film states the first attack occurred on Sunday, March 3rd, but in real life it happened on Friday, February 22nd. And, of course, the names are changed. I think it, the narration even says that the names were changed at the beginning, if I remember correctly. But it says Jimmy Hollis, portrayed as Sammy Fuller, was not pulled out of the window. Uh, and the girl, Mary Jean Larry, who was uh, Linda Mae Jenkins in the movie, was told to run. Uh, she was then chased down and sexually assaulted with the attacker's gun. So they actually changed that. He actually did assault her versus just biting her in the movie. Uh, it says she soon escaped and received help at a house. In the film, the doctor claimed that she was bitten and chewed. But she only had a cut on her head from being beaten. So the next attack claims it happened on Saturday, March 24th. And 1946, the 24th was on a Sunday. So in the film, Howard Turner and his girlfriend, Emma Lou Cook, were found dead outside of the vehicle. Uh, Emma Cook was shown tied to a tree with bite marks. In real life, both victims were found inside of the vehicle shot to death. The character of Deputy Ramsey was patrolling the area and found the bodies. Uh, afterwards, he saw the Phantom getting into a car and leaving. 
Now, on the real morning of March 24th, a passing motorist spotted a car and found the bodies of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore inside before calling the authorities. So, again, that was changed to for dramatic effect. By the time the officers were on the scene, the killer was long gone. So the film states the locals soon started buying guns and locks. But again, this didn't happen until two months later in May. The characters in the film then brought in Captain J.D. Morales of the Texas Rangers. Truthfully, Lone Wolf didn't come to Texarkana until after the second double murder near Spring Lake Park. Oh. Yeah. So again, dramatic effect. (laughs) Thank you, editing. (laughs) Yes. Uh, The film has Morales naming the killer a phantom, but the naming of the killer did not come until after the murders in April and by the executive editor of the Texarkana Gazette. So again, the the press named him, not Morales. Okay. Okay, the film then shows a high school prom with the character Peggy Loomis playing a trombone. And the officers were setting up decoys in an attempt to capture the Phantom, like we talked about. Uh, Betty Jo Booker, who played the saxophone and not a trombone, was playing at a VFW social event and not the prom. (laughs) (laughs) And officers did not set up decoys until after her friend... Paul Merton and her were murdered. So there's a lot of differences in here. Uh, in the film, Peggy and Roy are a couple, but Booker and Martin were only friends in real life. Uh, Martin and she were shot to death and her saxophone was missing for six months. In the film, Deputy Ramsey collects the victim's instrument as evidence. And lastly, it says in the film, Helen Reed sees the attacker before being shot. However, Katie Starks was shot through the same window as her husband. Ed did not see her attacker until they tried crawling through the kitchen window. So that's similar to what happened there. Window as opposed to porch door, I guess. Mrs. Starks ran out of the house but was not chased. Uh, At the end of the film, the officers chased the Phantom and shoot him in the leg, but the real Phantom was never chased, nor was he even shot at all. So there's actually quite a few differences between the film and real life. But that's true to any movie made from a real event. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's a it's definitely an interesting movie and a lot different than the other ones that we're gonna uh, review on here. And <laughs> like it's like it said, it's revered as one of the first slasher movies, and yeah. we can definitely see why and uh, mm-hmm. where the slasher genre went after this with Halloween and uh, F thirteen and Nightmare and all that. You could definitely tell this one definitely directly influenced the Friday the 13th movies, if not all of them. Yes. Very, very heavily influenced Jason's look. (laughs) At least for part two. Uh, Okay, we can just say they flat out ripped it off. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) what that is. But I get it. But hey, that one's my favorite of the series. And like we said, there's a 2014 sequel film by the same name. And uh, it's also a very, very fine film. And we will be doing that at another time. Once we get around to it. But yeah, this will be a uh, a bi-weekly podcast. And normally there'll be a third person in here. To, uh, so the conversations go on a little bit longer because we'll have that extra input. and Especially when we get to uh, the, the more s- movies that we're more passionate about. And, uh, yeah, it was a little hard to, to really get passionate about this, I thought. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was good. It's a good film, but it's not one I'm going to binge watch or yeah, watch so, over and over again. You know what? On a scale of uh, zero to five, what do you think of it? Uh, I'd give it a three and a half out of five. Ooh, very generous. Yeah. I'd give it maybe a three. Okay. Only because it was good, but I think I expected more out of it. Yeah. It could have it been better. Yeah. Uh, see, the problem is, is Texas Chainsaw came out two years, what, three years before this? Two years. Two years before this. And it is much more effective 
Uh, it's actually one of the few movies that actually makes me uneasy. I could watch that 100,000 times and never get bored with it. I yeah. love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I feel like this film, with having the budget that it did and being a couple years later, uh, even though I don't think it was uh, Texas Chainsaw had a massive distribution compared to this. Right. Yeah. Uh, it could have been better. Uh, you see films that were made before it that were just much better. So I'd say that's why I didn't get a 5 out of 5 rating. Yeah, and, and it's going to be hard to get a 5 out of 5 rating out of me. <laughs> I, I'm very particular about horror. I like a lot of movies, but there's very few that I actually absolutely love. But this, this uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the worst. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. Had a lot of cool moments. Yeah. Uh, anything else you want to touch upon? Uh, unless you want to talk about all the controversies. Now, <laughs> <laughs> that might be something we can uh, we can add in later. That's for overkill. That's a, that's the overkill. <laughs> yes, that's the overkill. Yeah. Also, uh, where I guess we're supposed to talk about this thirteen fanboy project on Indiegogo. Oh, absolutely. So thirteen fanboy is something that is uh, close and near and dear to our hearts. It is a uh, here. We'll just read the overview here for you guys. And it's uh, some fans love you to death in this film about a fan who hunts the women of famous Friday the 13th franchise. Your support will help Voorhees Films bring you a chilling horror thriller with your favorite actors from the Friday the 13th franchise. C.J. Graham, who played... Jason. In Part 6. Tom Matthews, who played Tommy Jarvis in Part 6. Tracy Savage, who played Debbie from Part 3. Deborah Voorhees, who played... What was her name? <laughs> is it is it Tina? No. Oh god. Tina, yeah, it's Tina. Tina from Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. Judy Aronson from Part Four, who played. I can't remember her name. I'm trying to think. I remember she was she was Danny Samantha. Paul. Yeah, Samantha. Uh, Ron Sloan from who played Junior in Friday the Thirteenth Part Five. Andrew Lightley from Never Hike Alone. Vincent DeSanti, who played Jason in Never Hike Alone. Also, there's been a couple updates. <laughs> a so, big update. A big update. So uh, there's a lot been a lot of fans that have been added. Uh, Art, Ari Lyman's uh, rock song victim in the... Wait, what was it? Yeah, Deb posted here that I am thrilled to give you the news first. We now have the fabulous Jennifer Banco from Part 6. No, Part 7 on board. And Ari Lehman, who I believe played Jason in Part 1. Yes, he was the boy Jason. He has a rock song that's going to be in the film. Uh, Kane Hodder was announced for this project. Motherfucking Kane Kane Hodder. Hodder. (laughs) That is a huge announcement. Yes, very, very huge. Uh, Very recent, too. Yeah, she actually just posted that... Three days ago on a live feed, I think. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, he played Jason four times, Leatherface in a trailer, (laughs) and Victor Crowley in Hatchet 1, 2, and 3. Did he play Victor Crowley in Crowley? I don't think so. Because I haven't seen that one. No. Uh, In the 1988 film Prison, he played the the victim, the uh, electrocution victim. Yeah, not to mention all the numerous stunt work he's done over the years. Yes. Uh, there's even more updates. She's announcing fans that are getting in here every day. But you can find it at Indiegogo.com slash project slash 13 dash fanboy hashtag slash updates 
Well, that's just what one we're on right now. But uh, yeah, you can find it at Indiegogo.com. Uh, yeah, they're 67% done with the the budget of how much do they need? You shouldn't have the info right in front of you. I don't have it. I pulled up, sorry. Oh. It is, they're looking for a budget of around $50,000 or 33, which is about 67% done. And there's a month left. I'm sure they're going to make it. And there's a lot of people backing this. 236 people so far backing it and we're still a month out guys yeah it's gonna happen please if if you're if you hear this and you're interested definitely back this i mean this this is just an awesome awesome premise yes i love the fact that they're pulling in all these f13 alumni in and there's still a potential that they could add more yes and i know that uh (coughs) is very passionate about this so definitely definitely check it out try to support it as much as you can We'll be supporting the hell out of it on here. Yes, and giving you updates every week. Every week. From here Every show. Yes. Uh, we'll have further and bigger announcements as time goes on, guys. Uh, you just got to stay tuned for more and more episodes that will come be coming out for this. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I think that's it for today's Yeah. Uh, do, do you want to do a promo for the next one? Tell them what we're going to be talking about. So for the next one, we're going to be doing 1981s. Is that right? Yes. Uh, the Burning. I love that movie. Uh, and it'll be from my perspective this time, and I'll be doing the reading with I, – I believe that movie has a score, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So we'll be playing the score for that movie while we while I read it. And, yeah, that will be released not next week but the week after, probably on Wednesday. So we're going to be doing that. And so, then hopefully after that one, the next episode will be Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yes. And it'll be our Christmas episode. And it'll be our Christmas episode. So there'll be hot chocolate – booze and everything else in between related <laughs> so enjoy that one and uh we'll probably do the second one see the, we could do the second one with the first one chad because half the fucking second movie is a recap of the first movie yeah yeah and i really want to put that garbage day fucking uh clip in the in the episode where he just fucking screams garbage day really loud in the middle of the street and then shoots a guy <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's we'll let's do, do let's do one and two. That's, yeah. that's a great idea. We'll do that because two is just literally like a forty-five minute continuation of the first one <laughs> with a different actor with some fucking crazy ass kills. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. The, uh, the original character's brother doing the killing. Yes, <laughs> makes no sense, but it's fucking an eighties B slasher film. I don't even call it a no, B if, slasher. If you film. think that makes no sense, four and five have like nothing to do with the first three. They're just so completely out there. I think one is like a demented toy maker. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think. Yeah, that's what, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll definitely do the the first two together. That'll make a great show. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so stay tuned. And I'd say next, not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after that, we will have a new episode of this out for you guys. So stay tuned. And thank you guys for joining us on the first episode of the Gordon Moore Podcast. And that's uh, TJ Bowser signing off. Chad Christmas signing off. And remember, 13 Fanboy. Is it 13 Fanboy or Fanboy 13? 13 Fanboy. 13 Fanboy. <laughs> Check it out on Indiegogo. Sorry, I got the name wrong. I apologize. You can beat me with a wet noodle later. But definitely check it out on Indiegogo.